Hello, and welcome to our podcast, Veiled Violence. This podcast is created by Alexis Gorfine, Addie Moman, Becca Nickerson, and Grace Connor as a project for a senior history course, Violence, War, and Peace. In this podcast, we will examine the history of emotional abuse and how it manifests in modern day, specifically in our high school. Before we begin, we want to warn all listeners that some of the content in this podcast may be triggering to those who have experienced or know someone who has experienced emotional abuse. If you need help for you or a loved one, please look at the podcast description for some wonderful organizations who can provide help. Before we begin, we would also like to establish a working definition of emotional abuse as it will be used in the episode. According to the United States Department of Justice, emotional abuse, also known as psychological violence or mental abuse, is undermining an ability's sense of self-worth and or self-esteem and includes actions in any relationship, such as constant criticism, diminishing one's abilities, name-calling, causing fear by intimidation, and forcing isolation from family, friends, or school and or work, along with other damaging actions. Although this definition is intended more for emotional violence that falls under domestic abuse between partners, spouses, and other more intimate relationships, psychological violence is prevalent in all forms. It can occur to anyone in any form of relationship, whether that be romantic, familial, platonic, professional, or otherwise. Furthermore, it can occur to anyone of any socioeconomic background, regardless of gender and or sexual orientation. In this episode, we'll take a closer look inside our school. I spoke to people around campus, from teachers and dorm faculty, to students, to recent alums. The voices I heard pointed to one overarching theme, silence. There are plans and policies in place for all manner of situations, but sometimes that isn't enough. Every two years, the Center for Disease Control administers the Youth Risk Behavior Survey, It asks students about their lives, everything from alcohol use to obesity to relationship violence. It focuses primarily on the physical aspect of this type of violence, such as whether or not a student has been in a fight or been forced to have sexual intercourse. The Academy also administers this survey. I talked to Carol Cahalan, a health educator, about obtaining the numbers. To share the information given by the students, she had to get permission from the administration, and even when I received the information, it wasn't terribly specific given the sensitivity of the subject matter. According to the CDC, 9.6% of youths nationally had been physically hurt by their boyfriend or girlfriend in the past year. Here, according to Cahalan, the percentage of students is much lower, and the number has been dropping since our first survey in 2005. The Academy's percentage of students forced to have sexual intercourse has also dropped over the past 10 years, remaining lower than the national rate, which is 6.7%. For sexual violence, defined as being forced to do sexual things that they didn't want to, such as kissing, touching, and intercourse within relationships, the percentage here was still lower than the national, which was 10.6%. These numbers are well documented, measured nationally and within some schools every two years. However, when I met with Ms. Cahalan and looked through all of the questions asked, nowhere did I see emotional abuse mentioned. I spoke to Amberly Darling about her perceptions of campus. Ms. Darling has a Bachelor's of Fine Arts in Dance Performance and is currently a teacher in the Dance and Theatre Department at the Academy. 
She is affiliated with Williams House, one of the two all-gender dorms on campus. Though her role on campus does not reflect it, she also has a master's in movement therapy and mental health. I asked her about what happens if a student were to come to her with a case of abuse. The biggest thing is if we hear something that is abuse student to student or student adult or anything like that, it has to be written in a statement and then sent to the deans. And then they go through a whole process with the police and everything else. Um, so there's a whole kind of chain of events that happens um, if something like true abuse is disclosed. I also spoke with Panama Gear an instructor in mathematics. She told me about the training new faculty members receive. They have an orientation period in which they are told about how all of the aspects of the academy work, including the reporting process. They learn about the policies and the state laws. Recently, she tells me that the training has been more focused on the physical aspects, sexual and physical abuse. I think we have some training, she said, but I think we could use more. Teachers end up having to rely on their common sense because they can't be trained for everything. Recalling her initial training, Gear tells me how she didn't know what parts would be the most important and that she wishes there would be some variety of refresher course to update her knowledge and let her better communicate with and help the students. When comparing the academy to previous places she has worked, Skier noted that she is now much more equipped to deal with hard situations. The framework set in place to help faculty here is obvious and well publicized. She knows who she can call for advice and support, but also acknowledges that it's on the prerogative of the instructor to determine when that support is needed and reach out on their own. Sometimes, however, it's not the teacher, but the student that needs to reach out. I spoke to a recent alum about her experiences on campus. Like, this was pretty abusive towards the end, I think. The two were best friends for the last two years of high school. I was pretty close with my dorm friends, but, like, especially with all the time we spent together in dance and like all the like, little activities we do outside of it. Like I felt like I had gotten the closest to her. She was like, like she understood me the best out of like all my friends. And I feel like there was like a, like a shift when we, we started hanging out, like when kind of, when the, when the breakdance group started dancing with our group. Like, apparently all the guys had a crush on me. All of them. This created some tension because her friend had a crush on almost all of the guys at one point. And her friend began to see it as a competition and as a deliberate action to harm her feelings. Her friend began to increase this competitive spirit, purposefully leaving her out of group projects or waiting until the very last moment before asking her to step in. She had become her former best friend's last option. I had been so close to her for so long at like her doing that thing and like knowing that she was like deliberately trying to leave me out of things, like uh 
face like angry, but also like I was so confused because I had nowhere else to turn to to voice a friendship. And no one was like with whom I spent that kind of time. Because they had been so close, this betrayal led to a feeling of helplessness. There was nothing that she felt she could do. Had it been anybody else, she would have retaliated and been her sassy self. But because of the close nature of their relationship, she could not bring herself to do so. She spoke to me about this time period and about how this betrayal, among others, led her to not trust people as quickly as she would perhaps like to. Someone had turned against her, leaving her roaming and alone. Throughout this whole process, the idea of going to faculty never came up. All of the training and thought and care that the faculty put into the process doesn't matter if the students don't go to them. Students need to understand that getting help can be okay, and they need to make the reach to get help. In the words of Miss Darling, It's okay to be vulnerable. It's not the most fun sometimes, but it's okay.